Thank you, Veronica. Really good to see everyone here and to have such a full, full building. Uh, I'm going to ask us to keep our Bibles open at that passage, this famous passage, which is a few weeks ahead of time. It really is Palm Sunday passage, which is coming up in real time in a couple of weeks, but we're going to preview it this morning. I'm going to lead us in prayer again, and then we're going to begin. Humble and riding on a donkey's colt. We marvel this morning, Heavenly Father, at your Son, who humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. We confess our hearts are slow to grasp what you have done for us in your Son. We pray this morning you would warm and strengthen our faith in him. For his glory's sake, amen. In World War II, Ernest Gordon was a British captive in a Japanese prisoner camp by the River Kwai in Burma. The POWs, the prisoners of war, were forced to build a railroad of death, it was called, transporting the Japanese troops to the battlefront. They were tortured, starved, and worked to the point of exhaustion. Nearly 16,000 in total died, and among them 2,815 Australian soldiers. Gordon survived the horrors of that experience, and he wrote about it in a now famous book called Through the Valley of the Kwai, published in 1962. It later became a famous film that was entitled To End All Wars. Gordon describes a famous incident when, at the end of a workday, the tools were being counted before the prisoners returned to their living quarters. A guard declared that a shovel was missing and he began to rant and rave, demanding to know which prisoner had stolen it. Working himself into a paranoid fury, he ordered whoever was guilty to step forward and take his punishment. No one did. The response of the guard was to shriek, all die, all die. He cocked his rifle and aimed it at the prisoners, at that moment, one man stepped forward. Standing at attention, he calmly declared, I did it. The Japanese guard at once clubbed the prisoner to death. Then as his friends carried away his lifeless body, the shovels in the tool shed were recounted, only to reveal that there was not one missing shovel. That incident is a shadow and picture of what we find here in this passage about the Lord Jesus. And what God wants us to grasp in this moment when Jesus is heading forth on a donkey into Jerusalem towards his death is that in his death for us, Jesus stepped forward. That is to say, he wasn't compelled unwillingly like a child being dragged to the doctor or something like that. No, he willingly stepped forwards knowing what he would suffer on the cross for us. Knowing that the same crowd that hails him king here, Hosanna, the king of Israel, will in just a few days' time shout crucify, crucify. He knew it all and yet he willingly stepped forward 
for us. And that is what God wants us to grasp this morning, that Jesus is indeed our king. He's the true king. It's not made up. He stepped into the reality of thousands of years of preparation for this climactic moment. But in doing so, he did so willingly, sacrificing his life for us. Two points. First, Jesus is our king. Please look with me to verse 12 and verse 13 as John narrates it. The next day, that is a Sunday, the large crowd that had come to the feast, and that is the Passover feast, as we said last week, from 100,000 to perhaps a million on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They came to the feast and heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. They hail him, they adore him, they cry out, Hosanna, which means save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This is this climactic moment on Palm Sunday in chapter 13 in just a few Verses, we will fast forward to Thursday night, the Last Supper. And then chapter 18, after a long period of dialogue and discussion and teaching from Jesus, in chapters 13 to 17, we get to the early hours of Friday morning, a good Friday. This is the moment that Jesus has been leading up to in his whole history, his whole career. I was involved on Tuesday night at our life course, for which I'm so grateful, many are praying and supporting, and I was sitting next to a young lady, and she asked a very good question to my mind. She said, yes, God, I understand God, this sense of the divine. I do know that there is everything in my life that on paper is so good, but I still have a missing angst, a a missing longing that needs to be satisfied. I cannot believe this is all by accident. I understand God, but Jesus... So random, so weird, so why then? Why that man at that time in that place? It seems so peculiar. Why Jesus? And I want to say to her, and I did say to her, wait, <laughs> there's more to come. But I opened and I said, this, this bit here, this half of the Bible, the backstory. That is to say, there has been this magnificent mosaic that has been prepared for thousands of years by God into which Jesus fits perfectly. He's not random. This is the preparation, the culmination, the fulfillment, as we explain it in biblical terms, of the whole backstory of the Old Testament. And the centerpiece is God's king, the long-awaited ruler of God's chosen people. God's king who would ultimately become the king of the whole universe. And it is a story that reaches all the way back into eternity. John chapter 1, do you remember? It begins before the beginning of time. The Word was God. The Word was with God. He was God from before the beginning. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before there was anything that is. Yet in the eternity of time, the mind of God was this preparation for God the Son to make this mission all the way down into our world, the first 10 chapters of John's Gospel. But then to return to the Father, all hinging, however, on this key moment that he is about to endure, to the cross. Jesus is the king. They were right to hail him as the Messiah, verse 13. Hosanna, save, 
in the Hebrew language. It's a celebration. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This is from Psalm 118. If you're into learning Psalms, can I commend it? It's one that is worth learning. It is quoted more than any other Psalm in the Passion, in the last few days of Jesus' death, life and death. It is a psalm all about the king. In the first place, King David. How he was attacked by his enemies, surrounded by his enemies like bees. But in the name of the Lord, he cut them off. And having been vindicated and rescued by God, we meet him here in these words as he is ascending up to the Temple Mount of Jerusalem in victory to enter into the Holy of Holies and present a festal sacrifice in honor of the Lord. And the people of the crowd understand that this is who Jesus is. He's the fulfillment. He's the jigsaw piece. Hosanna. Victory. And they are absolutely right. He is now on his victory march to the royal city to establish his throne and bring the rule of God and the peace of God to the whole world. Not just Psalm 118, but also Zechariah chapter 9, as we had read, verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, namely in Zechariah chapter 9, fear not, daughter of Zion, that is Jerusalem, behold, look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That is to say, Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Psalms. Jesus is the promised Messiah of Zechariah, written 500 years before this moment. And as we had read, this signals worldwide peace. What is the world longing for? In the Gaza, in Ukraine, all across the world now, peace between man and man. But peace even more so between us and God. And Zechariah chapter 9 verse 10 says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. No more wars, no more battle. The battle bow shall be cut off and he, this Messiah, shall speak peace, shalom, which is more than just the cessation of warfare. It's everything put right. It is life as it's meant to be, as it was made to be. Fullness, completeness, and his rule shall be from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. Why is the world in the disorder that it is now? Answer, because we're not properly ruled. Because as I've often said, we are like the conductors who have stepped out of our place and the symphony is in complete disarray. But the king has come and he has established his throne and one day soon there will be shalom. I love it when you see the miracles of Jesus and sometimes, they, well, always, they seem so bizarre and peculiar, but actually they're not bizarre. They're the norm. They're the glimpse into things as they will be, where there will be no more leprosy, no more paralysis, no more ostracism, a glimpse into the future. But the crowds here are right. Everything has been leading up to this point. Chapter 1, verse 49. Do you remember Nathaniel? from the beginning of John's gospel, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. What does Jesus say? You'll see greater things than these. You'll see the son of man. You'll see heaven opening and angels descending and ascending on the son of man. That is the portal to heaven, the opening up of access to God again, 
through this man, and he's about to do it. And the brief application for us here is, I would say to my friend who I was sitting with on Tuesday evening, is just, just wait and learn more and find out that this is not a figment of imagination. It's not a made-up thing. It's very difficult to arrange the place of your birth. It's very difficult to prearrange the very manner of your death. It's very difficult to be precise the person that the whole of the Scriptures and the whole of the nation of Israel and the whole of human history and cosmic history has been leading up to. He really is the King of Israel. He really is God's Messiah, but not importantly, not as the crowds thought it. They were half right. But they didn't understand the significance of what Jesus was doing in riding in on the donkey. Jesus is our king, point one. Jesus is our king. But also, Jesus is our king who gave himself for us. Who gave himself for us. Look with me to verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. You see, the crowd lords Jesus and hails him and vuvuzulas or whatever it was at the time and palm trees to celebrate the coming of the king. And Jesus says, yes, you're correct. You're right. I am the Messiah. I'm the king of Israel. But don't forget Zechariah chapter 9. So he gets a donkey's colt, which is a very unimpressive animal. And he sits on it, not a war horse, and he makes his steady progress to the Temple Mount. And the point in Zechariah and the point that John is making is that this is a glorious and almighty and victorious king, but one who is humble, who lowers himself. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10, Behold, your king is coming righteous, having salvation against all God's enemies, but humble and mounted on a donkey. This is the surprising thing about Jesus Christ. He's like a king that is totally different from the kings of this world. He is the one who humbles himself willingly, who does what is unpleasant for the sake of others. And most poignantly and significantly, his humility, which ends in his death. Don't turn to it, but Psalm 118 goes on to speak, as I said, about this binding of the festal sacrifice, an animal that is slaughtered on the horns of the altar, the place in which the judgment of God falls on behalf of the people. And the irony of ironies is that the festal sacrifice that the king in the original psalm gave was a, a lamb, but this king is going to pin himself on the horns of the cross to absorb the righteous indignation of God for the sins of the whole world. And by doing that, opening up the gates to the Holy of Holies so that you and I can know our God. And it's there in Zechariah chapter 9 as well. When you read an Old Testament passage, it's actually about the whole chapter and verse 11 of Zechariah chapter 9 says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant, the blood of my covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. 
the world is in a prison awaiting the death sentence under the grip of sin, our sin. And yet because of the blood of the covenant, the promise of God, climaxing in the giving of his son, that blood is the redemption price that opens up and flings open the gates of the prison and sets us free into life with our creator. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our king, but the king who humbled himself. And here's the key thing, and it's such a simple point (laughs) that we all too easily run over. He did it willingly. He chose to do it. Verse 12 is odd when you think about it in the context of John's gospel. Jesus receiving the adulation of the crowds. Because if you've been reading John's gospel, what would you expect when it comes to adulation and people wanting to make Jesus king? Answer? He hides away. He escapes. He leaves. Do you remember back in chapter 6, he feeds 5,000 people and the crowds are amazed. They understand God has come amongst his people. Chapter 6, verse 5, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, kicking and screaming, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Do you see, all up to this point in John's gospel, Jesus has been avoiding kingship, avoiding adulation, avoiding the coronation that so many people want to make for him. But strangely, at this point, he allows it to happen. He allows the adulation and the crowds to say, you are the king of Israel. But why does he do it? Well, it's there in verses 17 to 19. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. That is, all those people who saw with their eyes this man come out of the tomb are saying, this is the man who gives life from the dead. And then verse 18, the reason why the crowd that is, the rest of the crowd went to meet him, was that they heard that he had done this sign. The message is going around all over the place from the eyewitnesses, and thousands upon thousands are, are coming to see this man. But then verse 19, so, because of this, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Do you see what is happening? McLaren, the commentator, puts it like this, the rulers marked the popular feeling running high with bewilderment. And just as Jesus meant them to be, they became more determined and set on putting this madness to an end. That is to say that Jesus now understands the hour has come. Verse 23, the hour has come and now at this point he sets the match alight and flicks it and allows the whole thing to unravel, allows the whole thing to lead to his certain death. By enraging and provoking the Pharisees, by allowing this crowd to grow and hail him the king of the Jews, he causes them to be terrified that the Romans are going to suppress them and take away their temple and their nation. And by doing that deliberately, Jesus deliberately sets the course of his own crucifixion. 
That is all to say that it is in his timing and at his choice and at his will, he chooses to do it. He could have said no. (laughs) He could have stayed in heaven. He could have left us in the mire, in the bog, in the, the mud into which we had plunged ourselves as humanity and passed over us. But he came all the way down into the mud deliberately for us. Jesus is the king who gave himself for us. Listen to Bishop Ryle. He said, he did not die because he could not avoid death, but because he was willing with all his heart to make his soul an offering for sin. Never then let us give way to the unworthy thought that our Savior does not love to see sinners coming to him and does not rejoice to save them. That is the heart of Jesus Christ. In just a few verses, he will say, verse 47, I did not come into the world to judge the world. So many people mistaken that. They think Jesus is some sort of headmaster ready to catch you out. No, he did not come into the world to judge the world. He came in the world to save us. And he did it willingly. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. The life that I live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The incident at the River Kwai is a helpful illustration, I think, of what Jesus did in stepping forward. But the difference is, you see, we took the shovel. We're guilty. We deserve to be shot, to be killed to be judged, but he loved me and gave himself for me. As we draw to a close, I want to read this rather long poem, this song by John Newton, who was the slave trader, who was at the very heart of sending the first chaplain to this penal colony to preach the gospel, the author of Amazing Grace. And he writes this poem, this song, about the intentional nature of Jesus' death for him. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood, who fixed his languid eyes on me. As I heard his cross, I stood. Sure never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilty and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. A second look he gave which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for your ransom paid. I died that you may live. Thus while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace. It seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief and mournful joy my spirit now is filled that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. Who are we this morning? Each of us are those for whom our King 
willingly shed his blood. Jesus is the king who gave himself for us. Jesus is your king who gave himself for you. We pray together. We marvel, marvel, thank and praise you, our Father in heaven, for your king, your son, who rode into your city to die for us and for our sins. We pray that this morning we would be refreshed and strengthened in this truth that he gave himself for each of us. And we pray, you, pray this in his name, he who with you and the Holy Spirit rule as one God forever and ever. Amen.